Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur Show. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone who's out there, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs or on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. I appreciate everyone following me around on the road the last few weeks. Um, you can see all the episodes. I was in New York, Pennsylvania, Los Angeles, Denver, and now back to Nashville where I'm recording today. So it's been quite a cool trip, quite a cool whirlwind. Thank you guys for listening in, joining us, making an impact on other entrepreneurs, sharing the story. We're having a lot of organic growth. A lot of people are reaching out. Oh, someone told me about this or my aunt heard about it and I'm trying to get into the food business. So that's exactly what we're looking for. I'm not looking for a broad-based audience. I'm looking to make impact and influence with the stories of the entrepreneurs that are on here to inspire you guys and to inform the world about their products and ideas that these entrepreneurs are creating out there because there's more food, beverage, and nutrition entrepreneurs in the world than any other segment. There's a lot of us. We have a lot of power as a group. We create a lot of influence. We give a lot of core values and influence a lot of people and employees and coworkers or teammates, whatever you want to call them, team members. So thank you everyone for doing that. I appreciate all of you. Uh, we'll get more into that in this episode. But with that being said, I have with us today Mustafa Cueto of Cueto USA. It's a plant-based milk. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Did I get that all correct? You got it right. Got <laughs> awesome. It right. So, Mustafa, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your history. Like, how did you get into this space in the plant-based milk? Like, what's your journey been? And what was your childhood like, I guess, sort of, because it led to this? Sure, sure. Um, so I'll start at the beginning. Um, I actually um, was born in New Jersey. I uh, was the, on the East Coast for until I was about five. And then I moved to Chicago and was in the Midwest for most of my life. Um, I went to school in the Midwest, went to college at uh, Northern Illinois University, got a regular business degree. And then um, right when I got out of school, um, you know, I noticed that, and, and I think this is kind of where the fire started, a lot of my friends um, had gone to better schools, had been getting better jobs. And I think there was a little bit of uh, competitive juices that were being created back in the days when I was growing up in Chicago. And um, because of that, when I got out of school, I started out in a sales role. Like So I started working at a company called U.S. Robotics uh, that was founded here. It merged with 3Com and was a product manager and then got into inside sales and kind of grew up in the tech industry back in the days, you know, in Chicago. Um, but soon after that is when uh, the dot-com bubble happened. Um, and uh, I moved in, from, you know, U.S. Robotics to 3Com, a kind of a large tech company. And I joined two startups. Um, one was called rightfreight.com. Um, and another one was called Upstream. One did really, I'd say, decent. And one, like, totally failed miserably. And I tell my friends that, you know, the one that failed miserably is the one that I learned the most from because I saw like what you shouldn't do, you know, when you're starting a company. Um, after that uh, was right around the time when I got engaged and I felt like the startup life was a little too volatile for me. And I joined at the time um, a, a defense company or a security company and jumped out of tech and went into sales at a, at a security company. And ironically, 
I was selling facial recognition systems uh, just before 9-11. Um, and so my timing was really good because as, as anyone who was around 9-11 knows, right after that event happened, the world changed and, you know, facial recognition and fingerprinting and all that was, was really a big thing, you know, back then. So I'd say about 10 years of my career after the two startups was in uh, the defense business or security business. And that, that job that I got after the two startups was the one that kind of took me to Dubai, where I am now. Um, because what we noticed is when, when after 9-11, all the technology and the security systems that the U.S. had, everyone in Europe wanted to buy it, everyone in the Middle East wanted to buy it. And I was kind of like the guy who was um, creating and developing or, or, uh, or, or um, from Greenfield all the international business. So I went to London uh, with that company set up um, kind of their presence there, was selling into Europe and to Interpol. And then after a while, I realized that business was booming in the Middle East and I convinced my company to move me out to Dubai. That was 17 years ago uh, and set up shop for them there. So that's a little bit, that's totally an opposite sort of like track of food business. But I started out in tech, startup, kind of national security for most of my life. And then I was in Dubai for, like I said, 17 years. Could I pause you and for a second? Yeah, Could, yeah, go ahead. Let's go back for a second. So why tech after college? What year did you graduate? Just out of curiosity, why tech? Yeah, so I graduated in 90, I think seven or 98 out of Northern. And the reason I got into tech is I, I in college, by the way, I was kind of a... I was kind of trying to find myself in college. And so I ended up rushing a lot of the fraternities in, at Northern and I got rejected from all of them. And so I decided that I'd start my own fraternity. So I started a, a fraternity called SAE, which was a big fraternity, but was, didn't have representation at Northern. And through doing that, that was sort of my first entrepreneurial experience. One of the guys from SAE, uh, one of the advisors in the region who was helping us set up happened to work at U.S. Robotics. And he saw that I was a hustler and I was like kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit. And he's the one who got me an internship over the summer at U.S. Robotics, even though I had no tech background. And that's literally how I got into tech. And then when I was in, in doing the internship and got a job afterward, I just really liked it. You know, I you're, really liked the tech space. Dude, you're fucking badass. I was president of a fraternity on a college campus. And like that, just start one and deal with it. I can't even imagine. Just maintaining one is a nightmare. Letting starting one, maintaining one, and building one. Because I just yeah. like having a bunch of foolish boys do foolish things all the time. It's just like, oh my God, it prepared me for being an entrepreneur that I am. But oh man, <laughs> it's it's yeah. a little bit harder because boys, you need a little bit, there's a little bit firmer of uh, the 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 way things have to be drawn, the, the rules. But go on, I love this. So you actually formed a fraternity, yeah. which led you to a connection, which led you to US Robotics. So I feel like there's you know a divine path here in some way. So go on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so that just kind of going back, you know, I was like, I'm, I can speak in front of like a million people now, you know, I can really lead a team and all that kind of stuff. Back then I was a mess, you know, I was full of insecurities. I remember I had to give a presentation in front of um, the, I think it was like the interrural fraternal council for them to give us our charter. And I like bombed the entire speech, you know, like so. But it was the first time I put myself out there and spoke in front of like 
30 people, you know, like that's the first time. So uh, as you, uh, Justin, as you highlighted, that was sort of the, the beginning of my entrepreneurship journey. And I was rush chair. So I was, you know, a founding father and I was trying to like convince people to join. It was a wonderful experience. And then the other thing that we did is we were like, we're trying to figure out our USPs, right? So we were like, well, we don't haze, you know, or we don't, you know, like, so it gave us the opportunity to do a lot of new things that other houses weren't doing. And then now the house is like one of the most established houses, you know, on the campus, which is like super proud for me. Um, anyways, I know we're going back into No, I want to talk about this for a second, actually. I want to talk about yeah. this, actually, because um, one of the things that you said I think is important, because when we grew up in the 90s and we were, I started college in 98, I graduated in 2002, December 2002, <clears throat> so it took longer, but I also was building food service partners and trying to run a business and gain experience in life and <laughs> play soccer and, and was president of fraternity because I was an overachiever and a hustler like and wanted to have the best parties, but the safest parties. I was very aware, but the hazing thing, we were in a transition era in the 90s, like there was a lot of tradition around hazing and, and things like that. And then trying to transition into new fraternities where that stuff wasn't acceptable anymore. It didn't, it, did, it didn't lead to any goodness. It's not like you became a stronger network after college because of those things. So like, I know what this like, because so I went through transitioning out of traditions and into the modern era, let's just put it that way. I don't even know if I'm in, it's been 20 some years, but I don't want to implicate anyone. But either way, <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed some of the things, like there were some things that today I would still do personally, even if someone asked, didn't ask me. But there's a lot of things that like, there's no need to emasculate, demean or whatever. So like, and the pledge season, it was like once 12 weeks. And it's like, Jesus, people are trying to go to school and get good grades here and be well-rounded men at least in yeah. the fraternity. And so yeah. it's like, you know, having to balance those out as a leader, fight tradition, which I was trying to do, but also modernize like in the living era, which all things that live a long time have to adjust to a modern time. And that's just yeah. the way they that it is. And sorry, it's not what everyone wanted it to be, but the era of cell phones and videos and all that was gonna come anyway and take it all down and why needed it wasn't important for us to be bonded and so there was a lot of like how do you break those things down in the 90s i felt like um and it prepared me to be an entrepreneur a lot of change management like those particular situations to your point whether we realize it or not and when we try to remove our kids from those situations we're like no 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 you want to keep your kid like oh you're having a hard time in school uh, you're having a hard time. You want to start a fraternity. You should do that. It shouldn't be like, oh, that's a lot of work, honey. Are you sure you want to start a fraternity and get good grades? Nope. You should try all those things. If you fail, eh, at least you're doing it in a safe environment and learning. And I think yeah. that that was part of it also is there was a lot of that ability to do that. Not everything was so vocalized. Everyone had the room to fail a little bit and we had the room to change. Like we had the room to change a little more than we do now. We don't allow, we're, we're so like, oh, this person's this way and let's get them. But it's like, okay, yeah. no, no, let's leave room for change here. And so I yeah. think that that's an important thing that you just said. I didn't want to, it's not what we're necessarily talking about, 
But what we are talking about is these things in preparing us to be entrepreneurs. And I felt the same way as you did. I had to give speeches and we burned down our fraternity house my senior year because my best friend like smoked in the house and he wasn't supposed to. And his cigarette, of course, lit the Mm -hmm. sofa on fire and, you know, threw together a burning down the house like music festival rapidly to raise money and donate it to the fire department to not to look like we were going to do something good amongst the mess so they didn't take away our charter and everything i had to like it was crazy but i figured out how to loophole my way around it so it didn't look as bad Mm -hmm. and we saved face a little bit and realized our error and apologized to the community to make amends immediately and so like that stuff all teaches you entrepreneur entrepreneur ingenuity and the ability to pivot so i'm sorry let's talk about let me ask you the next question um I'll let you comment on that also if you want to, but I'm going to ask you the next question just so you have it. Um, What was it that you saw go wrong with that first startup? You mentioned one went okay, but one went so wrong and you learned a lot from it. So we can finish the, you can comment on what I just said if you want, um, give commentary, but but also I just want to anchor that next transition. Yeah, I I can address both. I think to your um, point, a lot of my... um, success as an entrepreneur today is deeply rooted in you know the first i don't know 10 to 20 years of my life especially during those periods of you know high school college insecurities figuring your shit out you know family baggage all that stuff you know starting a fraternity failing uh, all that is rooted and you know helped or hindered from from those early years okay so to your to your second to your second point or second question um, the one startup that failed, uh, the founder, who's a great guy, super intelligent, you know, what I realized is like, you know, the infrastructure of his company was like based in London. He had like an agency, you know, a PR agency in California. He had development in one part of the world. Um, he had his engineering team was like in Northern California. The PR agency was in Southern California, but his customers were in London. It was just you know, it was just so haphazard, right? And this is back in the days when there wasn't Zoom and video calling, you know, and it wasn't as, you know, easy. Um, so I felt like there wasn't focus, you know, I, th- I think that was the learning. And I saw that, you know, at some point in that in that journey, I think I was there for like a year and a half, the founder was like, listen, man, I need to cut your salary in half. And I'm like, why? And he's like, so the company can last longer. And I'm like, oh my God. And I just gotten engaged, right? So I was like, oh shit, what am I gonna tell my father-in-law? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. What do you do? Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I want to marry oh your God. daughter, but yeah. uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna really have a lot of coin now. And so and so that's when I just hustled. And I think those that persistence that I learned as a kid, I got on the phone from London or on the internet. I applied to like 200 jobs in New York City. Cause I was like, let me come back to New York, because that's that was kind of my home base at the time. And and my fiance at the time was in Toronto, so I I I send out 200 CVs, I get like five responses, you know, like two and a half percent hit rate. I call them all and I nail down two interviews and I get on a plane and I fly to New York. The first interview cancels and then the last the last opportunity I just killed it in the interview, and I got the job. You know, so like I had to really hustle. So. So to answer your question, those are the things that I saw that failed, but it put me in a really tough situation. But it led me to, you know, getting into the defense business, which I which I was part of for ten to fifteen years. 
Okay, let me go back for a second. You mentioned like insecurities and stuff, and I and I, I'm gonna actually talk about this a little bit. Also, I agree with you. When you go to college, it allows you to sort of separate out who you are and what you want to become. And if you're in family businesses and stuff, like I had my family members involved in the business I was building with them, and that can become hard. So, I and and I just want everyone to know like the ability to what Mustafa was saying, like there are family patterns we have to deal with. We learn a lot of to, if you focus on them in college and who you want to be, it's a good start, but it's this weird lifelong journey that I feel like they come back and the ones you don't deal with get bigger, even though you don't even know they're there. And so I do want to anchor that even as an entrepreneur, particularly as an entrepreneur, the more freedom we gain as through entrepreneurism and, and success and, and that freedom, the freedom to build our own legacy, you know, the the independence and the liberty to to have financial security, things like that. We unfortunately, the greater we grow because of being an entrepreneur, also the more we have to go back and deal with the negative things that are sort of anchors because they become bigger as we become bigger, for lack of a better term. And um, yeah. I think that's one of those things. Um, do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that if I look at the anchors or the fire that was created in me, I think it had everything to do with insecurities. I had a lot of setbacks when I was growing up as a kid. I'd say during, again, my junior high, high school years, um, you know, like my mother passed away when I was really young. Uh, My dad had to remarry. You know, there was a lot of my friends, you know, I didn't have good grades. My friends were, you know all going to MIT and Harvard and Columbia. And I was going to a school that, you know, wasn't that caliber. So I always felt like I had to catch up. Like there was, and that's, I think where this fire started and they would go to a better school or they would get a better job or they would, you know, get married and settle before me. And so all that stuff started building up inside me and it, and you know, it either takes you two ways either you it's destructive or you use it as fuel for your fire and it's like it makes you want to work harder and and the latter is what happened to me I just now I'm beyond that I've matured I you know I'm over you know I'd say I'm a lot more comfortable in my skin now um I've gone through all that growth but that I have to be so grateful that I had that fire because that's what made me want to like go get it you know what I mean I agree I think that the hardships are what gives it to you I don't know if everyone had been nice to me or not called me Dumbo or whatever name or whatever inspired me or, you know, maybe I was a sensitive kid, but it also, um, I think, or shy or insecure, or I couldn't speak in front of people ever, like forget about, it, especially if a camera turned on. Now it's like, I don't even notice. It's, um, it's kind of interesting actually. And, um, and, um, the, um, the, the thing that I think is important is when we grow and we keep at it and we don't like, Oh, I'm just not a good public speaker. Like I'm just not meant to do that. Like you never have the opportunity to grow or share a message or build a business or impact a community or use the gifts that are inside. Like verbally, I think expression, like it's just such an important part of life. It's like one of the E's I think are important of being a leader is the ability to express yourself and expression uh, orally. And I think written as well and written expression is important as well, but orally as well, because it's just an example that 
we as humans can have impact and we can have influence, but it's more than just social media and what we write and then a photograph. Like one push comes to shove, those things lead to oral impact. Those things lead to us getting older in life and needing to have real influence and impact on our legacy or the world if we want to leave something behind. And so I think yeah. that um, that's sort of what we're talking about is you have to go fight the insecurities. Um, for me that I have insecurities, of course, talking, I like, I can't believe I even still do the podcast. I can't even understand why I keep doing episode after episode. Honestly, I'm like, some days I'm like, why, what is it that keep you ask everyone what keeps them going? What keeps you going? You know? So I think yeah. that there's a lot of that, but I think a lot of it's insecurities and wanting to be the most best version of myself possible by the time I die and not wanting to yeah. waste my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about international business and what you learned. I w did my one MBA when I was in my 30s because I wanted that international exposure. It was part of a group of four other universities, um, Agade uh, in Mexico, FGV in Brazil, um, Rotterdam Business School in the Netherlands, and then Chinese University of Hong Kong at the time. And I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, mm. And... Um, but like the international business thing, and obviously sourcing food, um, I was in restaurant equipment, uh, all that stuff on an international basis, moving POS systems around the world, things like that. So talk to me about the international business experience. What was it like living overseas? What experience do you gain? What values do you think you gained um, from that experience? Yeah, so, so look, I've been living overseas for almost more than two decades, right? Um, and what I've learned uh, is that the business fundamentals are almost identical in every single part of the world. The, the fundamentals in the US versus the fundamentals in Dubai versus Vietnam where we sell or Singapore or Saudi Arabia for that matter. The core is the same, you know, you gotta, it's the you know four Ps and all this stuff that you, you learn in B school or in whatever. I think what's different is there's the, the, the way you communicate, the cultural norms, the business culture, I guess, is, is different in each part of the world. So, for example, um, <laughs> you know, like payment terms, right? So, like, in, in the Middle East, if someone doesn't pay you on time, don't be offended. You should have known that when they said net 30, it actually meant net 90, okay? You know, like, it's just a it's, – it's, it's not someone who's trying – they're not trying to screw you. That's just how it is, Right. Or, um, you know, so, so, so you got to kind of like read between the lines more in some of the emerging markets, developing markets, and then it becomes a norm and it's not offensive. It's just that's how it is, I guess, is what I've learned for international business. Um, you know, I think as Americans, you know, if that's your audience going overseas, you got to be ready for it to be, you know, a tougher negotiation. Yeah, I mean, you just got to... I think speaking to other people who have been in that market have helped me the, the most, but that's how I would sum up international business. The fundamentals are the same, but the cultural, the business culture is slightly different and slightly tweaked. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Like we have the same principles, but our personalities are different. Meaning some of us are harder, just like anywhere in the U S like if I go ne negotiate in New York city or Chicago, it's different than going down to the South like it hands down and 
the word yes means that's something different in Nashville as it did in Denver. Trust me. Like, (laughs) yes doesn't mean yes in Nashville. Yes sometimes means a slow (laughs) no. And um, yeah, it's a different different language. And I think just you don't, you don't, the thing is, if you're going overseas and you, it's probably, if you're not doing well at business, it's probably because you don't understand the language. And I don't mean it obviously from the literal sense, it's just different norms, right? And so don't get, you know, pissed off or take it the wrong way. It's just a different business culture. So, so I've mastered now the business culture in certain geographies and I've messed it up in certain geographies too, you know, but, but once you master it, then it's just the same business fundamentals, you know? And I think it's a skill you get through exposure. You're just talking about gaining exposure to different markets, to different cultures, then gaining the experience to negotiate or do business or whatever it is that you're doing in those cultures. Um, So let's talk about how did you get to to plant-based milk? How did you end up where you are and what is it? And after 17 years in the defense business, yeah. Getting in food is a little bit of a, you know, although I kind of understand based on where I am right now, but yeah. go on. So I'll talk about, yeah, a lot of people are like, how the heck did you get from, you know, I was at Boeing on the defense side to starting a food company. But but basically, look, I, I think it was just before I was turning 40, like just before I was going through my, or in the middle of my midlife crisis, um, my third child was on the way, Sophia. And, um, you know, I was like, in the wine and cheese party circuit, you know, doing these, you know, quarter billion, half billion dollar deals, you know, a lot of government to government stuff, um, going to the, the Dubai air shows and, and, you know, all these things. And I just didn't feel like I was happy, you know, like I, I didn't have that, that energy or enthusiasm that I had when I was a little bit younger. Um, but what I was really passionate about the time was just healthy living you know like i was big into my yoga i love going to barry's boot camp i learned that eating is where it all starts right and so i started exploring a little bit the food business and what i liked about the food business as you probably know is that unlike the defense business it's not very cyclical you know you have like a certain party's president in the white house and like you you know this country has a prince that likes that person and you sell billions of dollars for 10 years you know or four, 48 years i'm sorry um in the food business i liked it because it wasn't cyclical it was slow money even during a shitty recession you know people got to eat so so in so i was like i want to create something that i can hand over to my kids and the food business to me is very attractive the second thing that that helped me transition from defense to food is that you know i i i um just saw an opportunity right so i would go to the us every summer i'd shop at sprouts uh or you know or one of the grocery stores and buy all this healthy food and then when i'd come back with my kids after the summer It'd be full of like organic Valley and Horizon chocolate milks and Cliff Bars and all this kind of stuff. And they just didn't have the selection of stuff that they had in the U.S. or Europe in Dubai. And so, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, I was passionate about healthy eating and I saw an opportunity. And that's when I went to Expo West. Um, I met the big dairy companies and asked them if they'd give me an agency. They all tell me to, told me to go F myself. They're like, what do you know? You're a defense guy. You're a one-man show. You know, we have these 10 partners and, you know, they're so big. 
So I was like, you know what, if you guys, and so again, coming back to the fraternity experience, I got rejected from all the fraternities. I felt like I got rejected from all the big milk companies in the US. So I was like, screw you, I'll start my own. Um, and so, so I, 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 I bootstrapped this thing with like all my life savings. I started this um, Koida, you know, milk company. And I'd say about nine years ago, it was one employee. We're now 32 employees. We were in one country nine years ago. We're now in 10 countries, including the United States. We had two products about nine years ago. We now have 27. Um, and nobody knew us, you know, like nine years ago. Uh, we had like a 200-square-foot office. Now we have a, a you know, decent-sized 2,000-square-foot office in Dubai, a back office in Philippines and Saudi. Um, and nobody used to, used to know us. And now, like, Harvard Business School wrote a case study about us. We're in the Wall Street Journal. We're in the BBC. So, you know, I'm really proud. I feel like the same instance that I had in college, I had now, you know, where I like started something and now it's, it's, a, it's a very well-known brand here in the region. So are you still, do you still live in Dubai? Is that where you have yeah. remained? And so that's where you're yeah. running this company. So let's talk about building a food company in a desert basically how like how did you do that like how did you find yeah. the resources like where did you go like because well and i also want to point out that the best defense any defense co country that has the best defense systems probably ha is self-reliant on their food systems like i would say that's probably your number one defense is making sure you can feed your people during a crisis and that you have food uh, to yeah. feed your citizens yeah. but anyway yeah. So, and then how did you figure out how to do plant-based milk and, and where did you go to find the plants? Like, I have lots of questions because you, yeah, yeah. again, so, you're in a food sure, desert. Sure. Yeah, yeah, so so the one thing I will say is that although Dubai, uh, Dubai's terrain is a desert, it's nothing like a desert when you go there. Honestly, I feel like nowadays, I mean, I've been there for 17 years, the government there actually has done a wonderful, the government is like an entrepreneurial incubator in itself. It's only 50 years old, right? So they're very forward thinking. They love SMEs, right? They really try and attract them. Um, so my first point is that even though it is a desert, it's like Miami meets Las Vegas, you know, and it's growing at like an enormous speed, you know, the city and the, and the, and the country itself. So that's the first point. The second point is there's a lot of resources there. So Back in the days when I had to incorporate, you know, there was a few, you know, I had to find a local partner at the time. I had to go to the government and set it up. And that wasn't so bad. You know, it took me about 30 days and about 15 to $20,000 to incorporate, um, you know, setting up a company there uh, was part one. Um, but I think really um, the, the most difficult thing was coming up with our product strategy. Like, what do we launch, you know? And so the way we overcame that, again, was based on almost the exact same business fundamentals that you would have in the U.S. So we did, um, when I set up the company, I hired one or two employees, you know, in the first year, and we did a lot of proprietary primary research. So we went out and started asking thousands of mothers, you know, we didn't have any money to buy research, so we like went to our friends, we did Facebook polls, email. This is back in the days when SurveyMonkey wasn't around, you know. And we just interviewed, I think, 1,700 mothers in Saudi and the UAE, Kuwait, Jordan, the U.S., and Vietnam. 
and just started asking them, what are they looking for in a milk solution? You know, and what was the gap? And we learned so much from that information. Um, And based on the proprietary primary research that drove our NPD, you know, our roadmap, you know, and what we were going to go out and buy. So, so to answer your question, setting up wasn't bad. Um, Took me, you know, a little bit of money, a little bit of time, but the real work was, was the product strategy and, and, and doing the research and the listening. I really love this. And so I'm just going to pause here. I'm going to let everyone know in the audience sort of what, what you have going on here. You have, uh, you said you have 27 products. I'm just, it, there's an incredible amount. There's almond milk, oat milk, soy milk, soy for coffee, oat barista, rice milk, almond coconut, organic coconut. And then we get into like the normal, like milk from a cow, I believe, lactose-free, yeah. uh, one percent looks like lactose-free whole milk uh lactose-free yeah. like that two percent ish if you're in the united yeah. states or so so, uh, so 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 to help you just kind of organic put it in the ranges we have we have three ranges of milks we have organic dairy milk and like whole low fat and skim and then we have lactose-free dairy milk same and whole low fat skim small ones big ones and then the plant milks, which you, which we're best known for, and the ones that we sell in the U.S., we launched that only 36 to 48 months ago. We started with one product, and now we have like nine. So that's the fastest growing range. But we started in the dairy space, and then we moved into the plant space. And we've, we're a very consumer-driven brand. You know, we're not just dairy. We're not just plant. We realize that families now are buying different dairy products or different milk products. You know, the mom might want almond milk. The dad might want lactose-free. The kid might want, you know, a small portable chocolate milk or a whole milk. You know, it all depends. So how do you figure out where to go to find the milk and start producing it and packaging it? I mean, what was is there someone in uh, Dubai that does this? Or where did you go? How did you start yeah. figuring out how to conquer this, this sort of Goliath idea that you have? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so... The first part was we wanted to listen to the market through proprietary primary research and find out what did consumers want. The second part, which you've just asked, is then how did we go out and find it? What we learned from our proprietary primary research is that mothers said, look, we want the number one application at the time for dairy milk was kids, and we want the highest quality milk in the world. The country of origin, the organic certification, um, you know, all that stuff, the story behind the milk is all really important. The packaging should be speaking to kids. So we had some points, right? So then what I did is I took all my frequent flyer miles that I had from Boeing at the time, and I traveled all over the world. I went to California. I went to Texas. I went to New Zealand. I went to uh, the UK. I went to France, Germany. I went to Italy. And what I realized is that the quality of your milk regardless of if it's plant milk, like where are the almonds grown and what is the soil used for the almonds? Or if it's dairy milk, where, where is the grass grown? How do the cows feel? What's the soil like? You know, what I realized is that Italy has the best milk in the world because a lot of people don't know this, but Mount Vesuvius exploded all over Italy and the land is full of ash. And that's the exact reason why Italian olives, uh, grapes, wine, um, you know, uh, pasta, uh, tomatoes, 
tastes so good because the soil content is so nutrient rich. So when I tasted, you know, for example, our oat milks have Italian oats under the Italian Alps, uh, the, the grown under the Italian Alps, or, you know, it just tastes so good. So I, I made a decision based on, I want to, I don't want to have the cheapest organic milk. I want to have the best organic milk. And so that's why we chose Italy. So we produce everything in the North of Italy. And then from there it's produced, packed, uh, and then it's shipped to 10 countries around the world. Very cool. Did you ever think you would be like building a, an international milk company? <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not. I mean, like I'm an American in Dubai producing Italian milk and then selling it all over the world. So it's a, it's quite the uh, mix, you know, of uh, different elements. But to answer your question, no way, man, did I ever think I'd be doing this. But now that I'm doing it, it just feels so natural and I love it. You know, I'm really like, it's so fun. You know, I've really enjoyed the last 10 years starting the company and we've gotten a lot of accolades. Like we were in the wall street journal in 21. I told you Harvard business school was impressed with us. They wrote a case study about us. We won the Sophie award for one of our plant-based milks in 21. Uh, and then we just got a huge contract in the U S with sprouts you know, we're, we're in all 380 stores. So like to start with one employee in Dubai and to get where we have now is like really, really exciting. Like I love it. When I lived in Denver, Sprouts is huge there. It's a big market there and I've shopped there a bunch. I love the way they do things. And if anyone hasn't gone to a Sprouts, you should definitely go to a Sprouts in the United States. Um, yeah. So what is it that you feel that has given you this ability? Like what's about your product, your branding, your marketing? What is it that you, it, I mean, obviously the milk tastes good. You established that it's sort of like Mount Vesuvius thing is true. And like the charcoal filtering through the soil and the water and cleansing everything constantly. Like that's a big deal. I agree with you. So what do you think, like how have you been able to grow into other countries? Most people have, can't even fathom growing in their own country. So how yeah, have you I mean, been able to do it? So I think it starts with, again, we listen to the consumer, right? I think that has been our, we're, we're open to good feedback, bad feedback, the shittier the feedback, the better, because those are the nuggets that tell you what you really need to improve on. So I think listening was, was one. Uh, two is just finding the best damn product you can in the world. Like we are so confident that we have the best milk in all of our three categories. And it comes down to taste, nutritional value, you know, clean ingredients. And then I think the third point is, you know, creative marketing and hustle, right? And 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 those are two two symptoms of just being persistent. And by creative marketing, what I mean by that is marketing without a budget, right? You either have a shit ton of money and you can pay the big agencies and take out the billboards, or you don't have any money and you bootstrap this thing like we have, and you got to be creative with your marketing. So like we're, so what does that mean? So for example, you know, eight, nine years ago, we were the first company that really, that first healthy foods brand in the Middle East that got onto social media, right? We were the first company talking to social media. We met social media influencers when they didn't even have rate cards. <laughs> and we had to like make them, make a deal for them, you know? Like, so so we started doing, because I'm tech savvy and I think I'm young hearted, you know, we started doing a lot of social media early. We did a lot of guerrilla grassroots marketing. So I did like 10 coffee mornings with moms 
where I, you know, sponsor coffee, invite 10 moms, hopefully some influence, influencer moms, tell them the story, answer any questions about Koida, ask them what they wanted to see in the future. And then what would happen, which was beautiful. This is the year we launched. We did these 10 coffee mornings. The 10 moms each had like 1,000 to 10,000 followers. So it's a grassroots guerrilla marketing event. Each mom has like collectively, you know, let's just say 500, they all have collectively 500,000 followers and it's word of mouth and they're all taking pictures. And we did 10 of those and we hit like 5 million people. You know, it was like just a, a convergence of grassroots guerrilla marketing and the highest, you know, social media. So we did a lot of that and that's really what gave us our kick. And so in the region, we are known as the homegrown brand, you know, that's still 100% owned by myself. And we like, you know, we've got that connection with the community. So I think those are the factors that really helped us get it out there. Does that answer your question? It does answer my question. The other thing that I like is, <clears throat> let's just, I'm going to, I'm going to say a few things. One is, is you built a business, you own the business, you make the decisions for the business. I think it's an important thing, especially once you have the confidence, the career, you're putting your money behind it. You've lived a life, you had the experience, especially in your late 30s, early 40s to do this, being in a similar position and doing the same thing. I understand why you built the company during those years and 10 years later where you are is where I hope to be in my current situation with the new companies I build. And so I get exactly what you're talking about. I also understand that having the knowledge and be that fighter that always has a lot of rejection. Even with this podcast, I can't tell you how many people I reach out to. Like, um, there's a lot of people that don't even answer, but there's a lot of people that um, that even don't want to do it, or they're too afraid, or they're afraid of public speaking that won't even come on the podcast, which would you talked about on this also. So, it's not necessarily rejection on me. It's also their own insecurities and fear. Sure. So just keeping sure. that in mind, um, as a human, I've learned to like sit with all of that. But here's my question for the next part. How did you build a team? You talked about 36, I think you said maybe employees. How have you built this team? Like because it's hard as an entrepreneur, I know in building a business and and starting off with a few employees and then building the number of employees we had in the hundreds, like it's a very tough thing to build culture and, and, and keep your ethos. So how have you done it over the past 10 years? How, and how have you also modeled it to your children? Cause I think there's modeling that goes on in how we yeah. deal with our employees. So I think the first thing, um, that I've done, well, well, let me take a step back. I think I've been a good leader and been able to build and retain a team because I had so many shitty bosses when I was younger, right? I had the worst bosses ever, bosses that were screwing me uh, over, like promising, promising me a job path and then not giving it to me or like would create unnecessary politics in the organization or was like trying to pit people again. It was just a nightmare. And so I think because I got screwed so much when I was younger that I was like, listen, when I start a company, I'm going to make it like nice, you know, and treat people fairly. So I think the first principle that I have, and it's true, is that I don't, I feel like I work for my employees, right? Like no one's going to do shit for you if they're not getting a decent salary or a path to a decent salary or some sort of incentive, if they're listened to, and if, you know, you treat them fairly, right? You don't have to agree on shit, but as long as you're fair about it, that's important. So like, 
every single employer, at least my management team, especially like every weekly one-on-one that I have with them, I'm like, Hey, is, you know, how do you feel about things? Is there something we could do better? How do you feel about our working relationship? I just ask these questions and we've built up a really good transparent rapport. Like, you know, my management team is majority female, by the way, um, from five different nationalities. So it's super diverse. We have Turks, Indians, Americans, Ukrainians, Canadians. Um, and again, there's only one other guy and it's all women and the women, they run the show to be quite honest. Hopefully they're listening, but they tell me where to stick it like every five minutes and they're amazing, you know? So like I've also, I've also got a very diverse group and, and the management team meetings when shit comes up, you know, you hear so many different points of view and that allows me to make the best decision at the end of the day or collectively the team to make the decision. So I think to answer your question, how did I get these people? You know, I went into the interviews, I went into the recruitment saying, you know, what do I need to do as a company or as a person to attract them? Because they're, they're, I work for them. You know, that's kind of the, the principle that drives everything. Because, again, if they're not happy, they're not going to do shit for you or they're going to leave. And that's going to cost you more money down the road. So you got to you got to just keep them happy. My KPIs are not always quantitative, by the way, for them, for bonuses and stuff. The KPIs, are you happy? You know, do you have work-life balance? Can you go see your kids on the weekend? You know, there's a lot of moms, right, that we have. Every one of our managing team members is a mom. You know, how do we make, how can we give them flexible work schedules to go do their pickups and drop-offs? Can we tweak the hours? You know, as long as this shit's getting done, who cares, right? So that's that's kind of the, that's a little sprinkle of how, how I've looked at it. I'm very interested in this because I think that it's really cool what you're doing. I'm also interested to see where this goes um, because like, I well, let me anchor one point first. It goes back to being a sweeper, not a striker in soccer. That's I relate everything back to soccer just because I played the sport. <laughs> it's my favorite sport. I It's like chess. I believe soccer is very much like tre- chess and striking and moving down the thing and it takes a lot of strategy and people don't realize how much strategy goes into every play and how much time we spend as players or those professional players now spend working on yeah. those tactics and those moves that you see unfold. Um, so that's one. Uh, number two is I'm interested to see where this goes. Cause I think there's a growing market for other milks, not just plant-based but other mammal-based milks, like I've heard camel milk, for example, um, people talk about that recently as a source, another mammal protein, so I'm o- a milk protein. So I'm always interested to see where the future is going to bring, particularly as our populations grow, particularly as we look to other sources for things. Yeah. I think looking yeah. to plants is certainly an option, but I also think there's a lot of other mammals out there that produce milk that is yeah. flavorful, that someone as innovative and as ingenuity has ingenuity like you do could probably bring to the market in certain ways in certain countries or even the world to help um, lessen the burden on the cow and the plants like there's probably just because I think there's more than just those sources in my opinion and I'm throwing my two cents out where it doesn't belong but maybe planting a seed and um, so I think there's that so that being said like where do you hope this goes how how are you growing this and, and where do you see the future of your business going? Like, and do you hope your kids are involved, I guess, like all of the above? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, those are quite, quite a few really great questions. I'll try and hit them one at a time. But 
Look, in terms of the business, like we've built uh, a really wonderful brand. I think right now what I'm doing is I want to start scaling the business because I still own 100% of it. So this year, we're kind of at an inflection point. We've gotten through COVID. We've gotten through the logistics years. You know, 2021 was tough for everyone in food with logistics. 2022, we had, you know, price increases and inflation. I think this year, or at least at this point now, things are kind of getting a little bit more stable, right? And so, and so right now, what I want to do is I want to focus on a couple of my core markets. I want to focus uh, on some of my core products that are doing, you know, the, the, the fast movers essentially. Um, and I just want to penetrate deeper. Like, you know, for example, in the U S I'm really excited about our sprouts account. I want to focus on sprouts, getting our velocity rates higher, you know, building a really strong sprouts partnership to me is, is really important for 2023. Um, and you know, the UAE is a core market. Saudi is a core market. So I want to build, I, I'm, I believe in going an inch wide and a mile deep. I'm not, as uh, keen as I used to when I was younger about planting flags and saying, hey, I'm in 20 different countries. That's not exciting to me. What's exciting is really penetrating and owning a market. So so that's that's what I want to do. I've kind of like told you some of the core areas that I'm, I'm excited about, UAE, Saudi, uh, USA, Vietnam, you know, even Singapore. Those are really, really good markets for us. Um, and then, you know, I think in terms of NPD, you know, I want to expand the product range into – you know, I think there's a lot to do in plant, right? There's a lot of opportunity in plant plus protein. Um, there's a lot of functional drinks that are that are kind of interesting. But I like the beverage space. You know, I think what I want to be is the premium leader um, in healthy beverages. You know, to me, there's still a lot of opportunity. There aren't a lot of home. There, I don't know of really any homegrown brands. They're all VC funded, kind of big corporates. And they just have it, you know, there are pros and cons of that. But, you know, I want to start moving in that direction. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and how about your kids? Are they old enough where they're involved in the business in any way? Do you see that <laughs> so, happening? So, yeah, it's so funny you say that. So, so um, my kids, uh, so Serena is in boarding school right now in Connecticut and she's just trying to figure out what she wants to do in college. And it's so funny because I have my conversations with Serena and, you know, she's got her vision of what she wants to do. Danielle, my son, who's about to get into boarding school, is also trying to think about what he wants to do. But it's, all, it's also a little bit too early. But none of them have really said, hey, dad, I want to take over the company, you know. And so I don't – I want to create a, a legacy – you know, so their name is out there. I, you know, obviously, I want to have the financial success where I can have savings, so the kids can have a comfortable life. But I think before I kind of had this dream that you know Serena and Danielle and Sophia would come in and take over the company. I think now I'm a, probably a bit more realistic, and I've realized that you know the kids have their own paths, you know, and I don't want to put them into something that they're not passionate about. They have to figure, and they'll figure it out. Maybe they'll end up at Coida, maybe they won't. You know, I just don't know. So to answer your question. I want to, my kids to be proud of what, what I've built as a father, but they don't have to now necessarily be in the business or join the business. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I totally understand what you're saying. Like make it so it's there and you can train them or mentor them or there's a team there to help them if they decide to. Yeah. But if not, you would have to do it for someone else anyway. So 
there's always that. Yeah. So exactly. especially if you want the business to go on, um, let's let's talk about a few more things uh, as we finish up. Like, what is your motivation? Like, who has inspired you in your life? And like, why keep doing this? What is it about this particular thing that you're doing that that you find purpose in? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, I mean, the people that motivate me now, I'm 40, I'm in my late forties. Right. So like my answers, I, I have to laugh a little cause they, they changed when I was in my thirties. I would have probably said like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or, you know, this person or that person. But, you know, honestly, my, my father, you know, has really motivated me a lot. He's like, you know, grew up in India. His, he, he was in a family with like six people living in one bedroom with one bathroom, came here in the 60s, went to Madison, was like a janitor, you know, got his own degree, worked at Standard Oil Company. And like, you know, he like raised me and my and my and my three brothers, two stepbrothers and a regular brother. And so he, I, I think as I've gotten older, I'm looking back into a closer ring of people. And honestly, I think like now I just want to make, I want to make my father proud of what he's, the, you know, he sweated out to give us the opportunity. I want to maximize the opportunity. The other, the other group that I look at is my kids, right? So my three kids, I want them to see that coming from where I came, you know, I had a pretty kind of rough childhood that you can do anything as long as you're persistent, you know? So I don't want them, I want them. So that's the second motivating part the third motivating part is me. You know, I'm actually really proud of what I've gotten through. Like, you know, I had some really shit times when I was growing up. And so like, I've been able to, you know, I look backwards. I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, we're just worried about the shit that's in front of us for the next two, three quarters. We sometimes have to pat ourselves on the back and thank ourselves because we've gone through a lot of shit. And every quarter I'm like freaking out about something, but I sometimes forget to realize that, I got through so much shit before that this is just, you know, you got to, you got to demand plan it. Like every year you're going to have some shit storm, every quarter you're going to have some problem. And then Justin, I, 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 I watched one of your podcasts, but recently, and I think you touched on one of your earlier podcasts, but uh, my father recommended reading some books on stoicism. <laughs> and I've, and I, and I read, I read, um, I've read one book. I'm about to read the second one. And that, that is also, uh, helped me a lot in making myself proud of myself. So, so if you ask about where I get my motivation, I get it from the past, which is my father. I get it from the future, which is my kid. And I get it from my present, which is myself. And I've been kind of motivating myself, um, you know, and doing this. Now, obviously, I've, there's a, I'm part of EO, which is an, a network of peers that had similar sized companies. I'm always motivated by people who started with nothing in bootstrap companies. I don't, I'm not motivated by people who got $30 million and started something. And so, so, so I, so I've also got some peers as well. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. It answers it 100%. Um, so if you wanted to tell any entrepreneurs out there, anything, um, you wanted to say anything to your team that you have there, um, or inspire anyone, what would it be? What are sort of the core values you think maybe that got you to where you are? Anything like that? Like what what keeps what keeps it going? Um, we sort of touched on, I guess, so we don't need to touch upon that. But, you know, what is it that you'd want any entrepreneur out there who's 
in life like you have been, uh, what do you think is important for them to know? What core values do you think it's important for them to work on in order to be successful? Yeah, I think there's probably three things that just come to mind right now. I think the first thing is you have to learn how to believe in yourself. And you have to you have to learn that self-confidence is not something you're born with. It's a skill that you build over time. So you you create a lot of you don't go for a big win. You create a lot of small, small wins that help you build self-confidence. And anybody, anybody who's listening can have self-confidence. You just have to work at it. You know, give yourself small little goals like, hey, I'm going to get on the treadmill once a week or I'm going to do it three times a week or I'm going to run 3K. I'm going to go 5K, 10K. Or, you know, I'm going to make four cold cold calls this week, 10, 20, and you'll build up your self-confidence. So number one is you you need to work on your self-confidence and anyone can do it. And it's a skill. The second, the second point that I'd highlight is persistence, persistence, persistence. Like just never fucking give up. If you really, really want it, the the guy or girl who's going to win is the one who wants it more than you. It doesn't matter who they are, how much money they are, have, or what their education is. Whoever wants it better is going to get it. And I think, you know, I would cold call people and food retailers a hundred times, you know, and I'd hear no and rejection thousands of times. And I think the one thing that I've learned is that when I get a no, I now see no is just part of the process of getting to yes. You know, you just got to keep knocking on that door and jam your foot in there and just keep, keep keep at it. Don't ever give up. You know, that that's the true test of how bad you want it. I think the third thing is, listen, you know, have fun, you know, like people are going to fuck things up as an entrepreneur. You're going to lose money. You're going to have those moments where, you know, you're like, what is going on? But you got to learn how to have a good sense of humor and laugh it off. Like there's shit that happens to us at Coida on a daily or weekly basis. And the management team is like, you know, like we've had an LCD projector in the office for like 10 years. We've never replaced it. The bulbs are like dying. And I remember we turned it on to give a presentation and it was just like flickering, like, like there was a candle in there. And we just all started cracking up because we were like, this is bootstrap 101, you know? Yeah, and we're, yeah. like, we're like, we got the best milk and people think we're like this huge billion dollar company sometimes on the outside. And we're like, we're like, should we replace the LCD projectors? <laughs> like, there's probably some new technology out there. You know, like, we have, like, the old LCD, like, connections. I don't even think we have USB or HDMI. It's just so ghetto. But, you know, we laugh about it, and it just keeps us going. So I think I would say, to sum it up, you know, work on your self-confidence, because self-confidence is a skill. Be super persistent and never give up. And know it's just part of the process of getting to yes and Listen, just have fun with it. You know, be a little lighthearted. Don't be so hard on yourself and, and give it your best shot. How can, where can they find you online? Where can they find you personally? Like, um, like, and where can they find your products? <laughs> oh, cool. So on LinkedIn, uh, I'm there. Uh, and anyone is more than welcome to connect to me. It's Mustafa Koita, M-U-S-T-A-F-A-K. Is in kilo, O is in India, uh, orange, I is in India, T is in tango, A is in alpha. Um, they can learn about the products on Instagram at, at Koita Foods, K O I T A Foods, um, or Koita.com on the website. And then you can buy us, depending on where you are, if you're in the U- United States, Sprouts, 
or Amazon uh, are the two uh, best ways to find us. And then we're in like, in the UAE, we're in like 3,000 retail, 3,000 locations, Saudi, Vietnam, um, you know, Singapore, we're online, Jordan, Kuwait, we're in a bunch of areas. If you go to our website, you can probably find out where we're at. Awesome. Thank you, Mustafa, for your time. I really, really appreciate it. We're going to have you back on. I will definitely be reaching out in the next few months to set, a, set up a part two and hear how you've grown and hear how the Sprouts thing has gone. I think that'd be awesome. And right. uh, maybe get some I'd more questions to together. Um, also, for anyone listening in, um, if you like what you hear and you, you enjoy this, you want to share it, obviously you could share this episode anywhere in the world and it's likely that they might be able to get um, quite a product in their uh, country. So that'd be kind of cool. I like this. I like the dream. I like how big you're thinking. I like that boundaries don't restrict you, Mustafa. I like that you're just going after it. And I like that anyone in the audience who travels or entrepreneur mindset can see that it is possible. You don't even live where your product's produced, but you found the best quality by traveling the world. You were willing to look at it on an international scale, the problem, and not just on, you know, where you were. You're an, you're an Indian American dream who lives in Dubai, who's built an Italian milk company that, that goes all over the world to 35 plus countries, I believe is what you said. And 32. Ten, yeah. 10, 10 plus countries. 32 products. Oh, sorry. 10 plus countries, 32 (laughs) products. Let me correct that. 10 plus countries and 32 products. And that's just incredible. So, I mean, that's not an easy feat just to even grow within where you are to 3,000 stores. So that's cool. Um, Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, anyone out there, if you like what you hear, please share it. If you have any questions or you want to be on the podcast, you can DM us at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs, or there's a phone number on there. You can text it directly. And if you want to listen to us, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. And thanks for all the great comments, the shares, and the likes and five stars. Appreciated. Absolutely. We're out.